Hello, and welcome to The Corporate Activist. I'm Siri Khalsa, and I'm delighted to have you join me today for another great conversation about how businesses can engage in social and political issues to lead positive change in the world. This is our last episode of 2023, and it's a good one. I wanted to talk about how geopolitics is impacting the business sector and how the business sector engages with governments. This year especially, we've seen how events happening around the globe are impacting corporations, and also how the growth and development of business and technology is impacting the world we live in. I could not have a better guest to discuss these issues than Jeppe Kofod. Jeppe is a Danish politician who served as the Danish Minister of Foreign Affairs from 2019 to 2022. He was a member of the European Parliament from 2014 to 2019, and prior to that, served in the Danish parliament from 1998 to 2014. He has extensive experience in international relations with a particular focus on foreign affairs, geopolitics, security, trade policy, green transitions, energy, innovation, and frontier technologies. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, from the need for companies to have a chief political officer to deal with geopolitics, to governments supporting companies to become more sustainable, to the rise of Novo Nordisk, as well as what to look for in the year ahead in corporate activism. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Jeppe. Thank you so much, Siri. Great to see you. So, Jeppe, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. We're recording this at the end of 2023, and I think it's fair to say that it's been a pretty important year in geopolitics. And so I thought it would be really fabulous to have you on to talk about how geopolitics and business are working together or are being affected by one another. And this is an area which you've been dealing with almost your whole career, but I'd love it if you could just start by introducing yourself a little bit and telling us about your background, how you got into politics, and what's got you interested in this sector. I was recently, until the end of last year, the foreign minister of Denmark and also responsible for um, trade policy and uh, export promotion for Danish companies and also invest in Denmark. So like business and foreign policy has been my portfolio for almost four years uh, as a a foreign minister. And prior to that, I was in the European Parliament for five years having different roles, but also vice president from one of the two big political groups in the parliament and dealing with globalization policy, so trade policy and foreign policy of different kind. And then I have a background of 15 years in the Danish uh, parliament, national parliament in various positions, primarily reform policy and also chairing the foreign policy committee at a point of time. But the reason why I went into politics, the time I grew up in Denmark, in a tiny island in the Baltic Sea, in the 80s, I was in primary school. And when I was in high school, I experienced all the changes with the fall of the Berlin Wall in November 1989, and also the breakdown of the Soviet Union in 91. And this island I grew up in, if you look geographically, was on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain basically closer to Poland, to the Baltic States, than to the rest of Denmark. So I was from the outset very engaged in giving new generations in the old Eastern Bloc 
a future of democracy, of freedom, of uh, prosperity. So I start working with these issues uh, already in the 90s, uh, also before I went into um, elected politics. So I was doing democracy projects in several of the eastern states, from Czech Republic to Estonia to other places. Uh, I went to Ukraine and I went to Belarus, you know, already in the late 90s uh, to work with them. And so for me, it's been foreign and security policy has been part of my focus for, yeah, 30 years or something. And which means, because you're, you're, not, you're not an old man, which means you started your political career quite early. How old were you when you first ran for office? I was 23 at the time uh, when I was elected first time. Just turned 24 uh, when I was um, in my first term in parliament. Yeah, so it was pretty young. And before that, I've been working as a set of consultant, as working with politics, advising also uh, one of the ministers of defense from my party at the time. Yeah, I was very involved. And then I got a chance to run. And to my own surprise, <laughs> I was elected. I didn't expect it at the first election. That was your first your Yeah, first yeah. And I was run. up against wow. pretty strong candidates from our own party. It's, the, the, the way it works is it's, we don't have primaries, but we have several candidates for one seat in your own party. So it's all a matter of like, you know, personal votes. It's not a party system, so personal votes. So the ones who got the most vote will be the representative in that constituency and, and we were three and there was one incumbent and she was very strong but yeah I managed to pass her and then I was member of parliament in a very young age. Interest of transparency I'll just say that you and I are, are good friends that met at graduate school. We were both studying politics at the Kennedy School. You were at that time a member of parliament and then have since gone on to hold these really interesting positions in Danish politics and European politics even. You stepped out of that <laughs> for the first time in many years, and you're starting to work in more in the private sector and that place where the private sector and the public sector intersect. And it seems like it's one of the most interesting times to be in that place because so much of what's happening in the world is affecting what's happening in business. And so much of what's happening in business is affecting what's happening in the world. And so this intersection of the two is a really dynamic place right now. And, you know, especially this year, I know that last year you were in Ukraine meeting President Zelensky and Denmark was having an important role in that conflict. And I'm sure you've spent a lot of time in the Middle East and, you know, Obviously, now that is the hot spot that we're dealing with, and, and there's a need to solve that. But I'm curious, now that you're looking at things from more of the business side, from the private sector side, how are you seeing what's happening in, in geopolitical events and how that's affecting the private sector? Yeah, in my term, I experienced pandemic. I experienced the collapse of Afghanistan, which was very painful for many of us the longest uh, war of the U.S. Uh, ever. Uh, I experienced the Russian aggression against Ukraine and the 24th of February uh, 2022. So it's uh, clear for me that the world we are in, not only the concrete events, but also the concrete events, but, but also the, the more global competition, fierce competition between in particular 
China and the US, but also some of the system. We are moving from one world order to another world order. And in that, in that process, there's a lot of things happening and uh, we are not in a new equilibrium yet. So therefore, I think companies that I work with today, even though they have probably within their sector, within their industry, they have the best business model ever, very successful, very profitable, but they are all of them. They are all disrupted by what's happening in geopolitics, whether it's big shipping companies or it's pharmaceutical companies or even like consumer products, everything is affected. And therefore, you cannot run a business without having these risks assessed and have contingency plans and have a strong kind of understanding of the world. So I'm normally saying that you have the CEO, you have the CFO, you have the, also sometimes a chief sustainability officer in the company, but probably also need a chief political officer that can help you navigate all of what is happening. And now recently with the tragical, tragical events in, in the Middle East, the war between Israel and the terrorist group Hamas is, is again affecting all of us. In many ways, we are entering a new, more insecure, unstable, unpredictable global situation. And we don't know exactly where we are heading. And therefore we need to, we need to, in that process, we need to remove as many of the risks as possible for companies, for societies. And and that's where I try to bring my competences from public policy in the highest level also as foreign minister into, into the play when it comes to businesses. And I'm driven by missions by helping dealing with the global challenges, whether it's a climate challenge or uh, it's uh, health or instability and uh, injustice. So I think it's in that sense, I'm very concerned about our global institutions that can uphold a rule of law order, whether they would survive in this new period we're entering. We already see for example, the World Trade Organization, which I also attended because I was also covering trade as a also trade minister, but part of my foreign and ministry portfolio. And I personally kind of witnessed how the World Trade Organization de facto is dysfunctioning, uh, even on the political level. And that was very, um, that was very depressing in a sense, because I believe in rule-based trade order and the companies, they used to be able to kind of say, okay, if you have rules, most countries subscribe to, then we can also have some security around our business, but that has been removed. So everything is becoming political in, in one way or the other. That was a very long answer, but that's what I experienced in my almost four years as foreign minister. And even before that, the world was in a state of change. I'm really interested to know how you saw companies interacting with governments, with politics, especially when you were at the European Parliament, because I imagine there were a lot of companies at that time who had certain ideas about regulations and things, subsidies and things like that, that they were interested in. But, you know, here at the corporate activists, what we're also interested in are companies that want to see societal change and are pushing that on a political level. So I'd be really curious if you could tell us like some of your experience from maybe particularly the European Parliament in companies that were trying to push certain agendas and how they did it 
and you know were they successful and how did it work? I'll be happy to do that. I'll also give I can give you some examples also how we worked with these issues when I was in the, in the Danish government. But in the European Parliament, when I was in the European Parliament, it was from 2014 to 2019. Some people might recall that in 2014, there was big tax scandals, the LuxLeaks, and later the, the Panama Papers came, you know, not only tax evasion, but also financial crimes and fraud of different kinds and money laundering. So I was actually appointed by the parliament to be a rapporteur, so meaning that on the economic committee, meaning that we, um, I was the one writing the report about Panama Papers to football leagues to big money laundering scandals with uh, many European and global banks. And for me, that was an example of, you know, where the corporate world, this part, this part is with financial corporate world, they didn't they didn't live up to the standards that they should. Even Danish banks, you know, like the biggest one in Denmark was engaged in the Baltic states, helping Russian uh, oligarchs laundering money out of Russia, stealing state assets. So we had a system, <laughs> we still in some ways, but it's becoming better, where we had transnational huge finance institutions and regulators that didn't have the proper laws or regulation or institutions to deal with how you can plan your taxes or avoid, uh, avoid your taxes or even do you know money laundering or financial crimes without being punished so to speak because it's so hard to detect so that was i was working with that and, and i saw i must say i had examples of you have the uh, associations of banks in europe coming to you complaining why are you you want to do new legislation on know your customer and due diligence and uh, new stronger money anti-money laundering laws and i was pointing to the us and yeah there you have a better a stronger regulatory body than we had here in europe we need one in europe we need a anti-money laundering institution and, and all of that but they were very they were very critical but there were others and i could mention them by name no problem by mentioning it by name that was lobbying me for example pricewaterhousecoopers who who were serving the big companies, helping them not on money laundering, but on planning their taxes, which give this perverse situation where if you had a good enough tax advisor, you could, you could avoid paying corporate tax, while other companies, medium and small companies that didn't afford this very expensive tax advisor, they, they had to pay the tax and therefore there was a unequal competition. And I believe in free and fair competition in a in a well-functioning market and it was not well-functioning market we were not free and fair competition so but they said yeah listen let's find new legislation that can help close the loopholes and ensure that we have a level playing field so they were constructive in that they saw that they have a societal responsibility to to create a better system where, where corporations pay their in this case their corporate tax because at the end of the day, that is money, this revenue is used for hospitals, for elderly care, for uh, schools, education, for all of that, that makes, in that case, European societies work as, as, a, as society. So, so without these revenues, societies are in a worse situation. And, and, and why should people go to work and pay a high income tax while big corporations could do their business without paying any tax? So there was a clear injustice in that, and, and they help. Uh, solving some of these problems. 
it was also high politics because you had all of you know the, you have media investigative journalists that was revealing all of this at the same time as we were working with it in the parliament from the uh, parliament side you had governments you had even some of these scandals linked to high ranking uh, politicians <laughs> in governments uh, that uh, was say was a, had secret money or was doing some kind of money laundering or financial secrecy that not just uh, justifiable so in that sense yeah it was um, for me a clear example of where ethics and values was not present in a system and where people was were corrupted uh, too many years and and that the legislators had two soft laws solving these issues. And did you find that there were like corporate interests always present? You know, were there lobbyists kind of always in the hallways and was it sort of a constant thing? Yeah, I mean, there were all kind of lobbyists. There was also the lobbyist who was advocating for uh, better tax laws, more transparency, more equality between the developing countries and and the developed countries. You have, for example, Oxfam, big organization. Uh, they have tax justice network, and there are so many. So there was on many sides people who were putting the ideas into the process. NGOs, uh, corporates, but also I would say even our own government institutions like uh, the OECD was very active, or even the, the European Commission, DG Tax. <laughs> was also coming with their ideas to the parliament. So you had a lot of different stakeholders. Um, yeah, so in that sense, it to me showed that there was a political will, there was a drive to change the system. Not always in, we were agreed how to do it, but everybody saw that there was a need to to close the gap and, and move on. And I know that one of the things that you worked on when you were in parliament and as a minister was the green energy transition. And I know that this is something that is continuing to be really important for you. And so I imagine that there are companies also who are invested in this. And so I'm wondering, like, how do you see business interest in the green economy working most effectively with government to get needed regulations passed, to work on compliance issues, to you know, just get the government support for green transitions. That's one of the big, big challenges. And that's perfectly legitimate. A business wants to have revenues and profits. So that's what drives them. And also, of course, yeah, shareholders and investors, they need to see results. So in that sense, uh, you have to have an effective business. So the idea was that how did we for example, make regulation that will make a market, for example, renewable energy or energy efficiency products. Um, and there I was working a lot with uh, companies on this because in Europe, you know, 27 uh, member states, we have one single market. So all of this is regulated in the single markets. Um, it's a renewable energy uh, directive, it's energy efficiency directive, for example. So in that sense, um, it's quite important what requirements that are to producers in that market. For example, when you look at renewables, uh, renewable energy, how do you, in a way, subsidize renewable energy so it can compete on 
with a more level playing field with uh, fossil fuels because they are heavily subsidized fossil fuels? Or how do we remove subsidies from fossil fuels and thereby make renewables more equal when it comes to subsidies and thereby becoming the business case better? How do we put your, your targets on how many renewables should be deployed? All of that, I work very closely with, with, um, with companies. And again, uh, think tanks. And, and in, I, what I experienced in the European Union, at least, is that when we worked well together, we were like, in a way, a big think tank. I mean, we were like, uh, with different stakeholders coming together, we have a problem, we need to tr transform our energy system, decarbonize our energy system. How do we do it in the most effective way with regulation, with subsidies, with CO2 emission trading systems and so on? And how do we do it? How do we put a European system? And, and in a way also, how do we inspire the world to do similar things? Uh, one of the things I also worked with was um, eco-design and labeling. I mean, we had a system and you now have many places around the world, but I think Europe was one of the first ones to have it where you can, on your appliances, you can see, you know, how much energy they use, how much water they use and electricity and so on. And you can thereby choose uh, the ones who's most effective or most environmental friendly. You also have in the regulation, you have requirements, how things are designed and it, it can become very technical, but these small technical stuff can make a world of difference on energy efficiency, for example that can save energy. And there were many companies that are working with energy efficiency, whether it's insulating your house or it's uh, building pumps that can be more effective, uh, used as energy, air conditioning systems or heating systems. So, you know, there are so many things where you can do a little bit regulation and thereby create a market and make it profitable for the right companies to succeed. We keep coming back to that on the topic because if it isn't financially viable, it's not sustainable. And so that's really one of the keys that we try to help people see that both things can be accomplished. That's really the key to this. And you were very instrumental in helping to position Denmark as a leader, really, in renewables. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that because you have, you know, I think Denmark is really one of the role models that the rest of the world can look to in terms of You've also, I know, had to deal with a lot of climate migrants as well and immigration issues, but seems to be navigating a lot of these things quite well. So it'd be great to hear a little bit about your thoughts on that. I, I think it comes from uh, Denmark is a Nordic, Scandinavian country. We always, uh, if you look in our history, as welfare societies, as very rich, very prosperous societies, we always thought that we owe the world to become a front runner, whether it's on creating better societies for people uh, or it's dealing with global problems. Um, that's not only Denmark, that's also Norway and Sweden. They have this uh, in, in its genes, so to speak. But it's also, when it comes to the green transformation, it's also very, very good business for companies in Denmark. It, it created a lot of jobs, also manufacturing jobs in the wind turbine industry, in the heat pump industry, in, in the insulation industry. There's so much that we can do. So if you look at it in the Danish society, you know, where the, the grow in jobs has been coming from in the recent years, there's quite a lot, a lot to technology companies. But if you leave that aside, it's been very much on, on I would say, green energy companies, both on the renewable energy side and on the energy efficiency side. 
so when I was foreign minister and, and trade minister, so what, what I did from the outset back in 2019, I was saying, okay, we will have an aim to establish what we call green strategic partnership with countries uh, around the world that represents half of the world's CO2 emission. Because if we can do that with a green strategic partnership where we, we can help our companies to go to China, for example, which is one of the companies, uh, one of the countries we did a green strategic partnership, a green partnership with, and, and they can deploy their technology and they can help, you know, reducing CO2 emissions. We have companies in Denmark that has helped China on, on energy efficiency and, and just the the cut in, in CO2 emissions from that is far bigger than the total emissions of, of Denmark, just one project, you know, because China is so huge, of course. So that we did. And one of the first things I did was actually uh, as foreign minister to pave the way. And we also did it when I was in government, uh, make a green strategic partnership with India. So India chose Denmark as the first country in the world to do this uh, green strategic partnership with. And now we are working very closely with India, which is more, uh, you know, and it's not to offend India, but it's more developing economy. So they have, they have a lot of challenges, both to ensure you know, development for all Indians, uh, all the people in India, uh, but also to, to make it more sustainable and more green. And there Denmark could help. And, and Modi, uh, the prime minister was saying, yeah, he at once he was saying that yeah, India has the scale and Denmark has the skills on this issue. We want to work with you. And we did this partnership. We did it with South Africa, we have done it with China, and, and we have done it with uh, several other countries. So we also do it in Europe. I mean, we, with Germany, for example, our neighboring country, and that's linked to geopolitics after the, the Russian aggressions against Ukraine last year, they had, of course, to stop or phase out import of Russian gas, uh, which was, uh, you know, the Nord Stream 1 and 2 were, in my opinion, the huge mistakes from the German side, uh, the gas pipeline between the, Feder the Russian Federation and Germany and big risk. And we showed the consequences of that big strategic mistake from Germany's side. But then they had to replace cheap Russian gas with something else. And they also closing down nuclear power stations. So in, in the short term, they just burned more coal and they still do. And, and therefore we, we were working a lot with Germany to, you know, can we, provide other energy forms, can we provide energy efficiency, energy savings, then it will mean a lot, even in a, in a very industrialized and developed country like Germany. So, which is uh, Indian in Europe for industry, which is uh, a global, I mean, if you take the German GDP, for example, it's actually bigger than the 55 countries in Africa has combined still today. So we have to work with both the developing countries, so like South Africa, Egypt, or Nigeria, and others, uh, big big economies in Africa, or, and we have to work with the us even developed countries. With the U.S., for example, which is our first or second export country, it depends. It's competing with Germany, but uh, if you look at the, what we are exporting to U.S. at the moment, it's very much uh, energy systems or building offshore wind farms in Northeast outside uh, of New York and uh, Massachusetts, you know, that's the Danish companies uh, helping to electrify and decarbonize the US system. So in that sense, 
that was also my role, work with all of these governments to help pave the way for my companies. I have what might be a little bit of breaking news. I'm not sure if you even know this yet, but the Financial Times just named their person of the year. And it happens to be Lars, and I'm gonna, not going to say this well, um, Frugard Jorgensen, who's the um, CEO of Novo Nordisk. In the article, they talk about basically the size of Novo Nordisk and, and what it means for Denmark. And it's really interesting how this pharmaceutical company is basically now the richest company in all of Europe and its impact on the Danish economy. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> Did you know that he had won? <laughs> no, that's a, that's a very pleasant surprise. Uh, not surprised, but news to me. I mean, it, it is, I have to say, it is new even to Denmark that we have companies that are global that has been so successful. Novo Nordisk is a primary example, but we have others. Uh, we have this uh, one of the world leading shipping companies uh, and container port companies in Maersk. But Novo is a particular case because the pharmaceutical industry, Denmark is 6 million people. Okay, we have now, as you say, by market cap, Novo Nordisk is the most valuable company in Europe and probably 15s in the world or something like that. Headquarters in Denmark, you know, Danish company founded by, you know, research, by knowledge development, by innovation. I mean, it's, it's something that shows that investing into ground research, into, into, into each big issues that society deal with, because Novo is doing life treating therapy for diabetes, for example, and helping people around the world with that. Uh, and as the global population gets older, and unfortunately, they're also more obese, some of them. The diabetes is one of the diseases that need to be treated. And they also now know where they work with them, helping people who have challenges with uh, obesity, uh, have a hard time dealing with it. They, they have a product now that even in the US market, in Danish market, and a few other countries, uh, like the Gobi, where they can help you reduce weight uh, so you can live a more healthier life. And, and, and that is, of course, fascinating. But this company has also a special structure of ownership. So it has um, a holding that owns it, but it also has a foundation. So much of the revenues that the company creates is also going into uh, the Novo Foundation, which is bigger than the Gates Foundation today. And they are doing a lot of good societal things primarily within global health, but also within food and biotech, because food is also a big challenge. So for us in Denmark, it's a success story. I mean, you can actually, if you look at our GDP now, you can see the effect of the pharmaceutical sector on the GDP. We are not in recession because of pharmaceutical sector and what people say because of Novo Nordisk, because that's so successful. It comes with, I would say, these kind of successes come with a lot of responsibilities as a company. Moving from a pharmaceutical company to a global health player like Novo is, requires a lot of uh, efforts as a company. And they are doing that, in my opinion, very well. But I also know in other countries, like in the US, the pharmaceutical industry is not always regarded as um, the most with, with the highest uh, trust, but but here in, in Denmark it's, it's different. And I think what Novo is doing also 
investing a lot into ground research uh, in Denmark is uh, to keep developing new products, new medicine that can be life-saving for patients and, and looking into a world without without diabetes. These kind of things is important. So what, what I see is, you know, we have the climate, the green economy, that is a big challenge to us. That's a global societal challenge, but we also have health and aging populations and, you know, ensuring that people will live better lives. Coming pandemics. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so yeah, so Novo is, uh, yeah. is that, but it's, it's also affected by geopolitics, of course. Talk more about that. Like, I'm curious, a company that is so big, obviously, that comes, as you say, not only with a responsibility to society, but also some power to affect change. And so I'm really curious, and perhaps even power in the geopolitical sense in terms of taking a stance on some of these conflicts or or trying to affect some of these international relationships and things. So I'm curious, do you see, and not necessarily for Novo, but for any company, when they're faced with these geopolitical challenges, how do they take a step in? How do they say, well, actually, you know, if this conflict continues, our supply chain is going to get ruined. So we don't want that. So how can we, you know, help solve this? Do you think that companies are thinking about those things and, and actually trying to perhaps solve some geopolitical issues? They are in, in various ways. I mean, of course, they are pharmaceutical companies. So what they have done also historically, for example, helping with providing for a period of time, you know, free medicine to people. Uh, they have done it after the collapse of the Soviet Union and some of the ex-Soviet states, for example, or done it in the Middle East. So they do that. So take a, a responsibility. They're also doing it in Ukraine. They have been helping Ukraine in various ways, also in the health system more broadly. And with the foundation, they are doing a lot on global health around the world. That's one thing. But they also, frankly speaking, they also, they are headquarters in Denmark. And so it means they pay their corporate tax in Denmark. Yeah. And they pay a lot of in corporate tax because they're successful. So they also are asking the political system, including any government to, you know, promote uh, peace, promote stability, creating a stronger European Union, all of these things that are important for companies so they can plan 5, 10, 15 years ahead. At the moment, they're also looking at, you know, how can we ensure decarbonizing our energy that, that is a big input to the manufacturing plants that they have around the world, even in, in Denmark. They have invested in a new plant. I think it's the biggest investment of any plant in Denmark ever. They just announced it recently. So they're building huge plants that are running on renewable energy. So in that sense, they can, they can also affect not only their own sphere, but actually uh, the climate agenda with what they're doing and, and they're taking this very seriously. So I was hoping any company would do that. But I also understand that, yeah, I mean, they are well positioning Novo to do it right now because they're profitable, but again, Anybody who knows the pharmaceutical sector knows that, yeah, you know, they have uh, developed groundbreaking medicine, but they have to also develop next generations and next generations. So they are putting a lot of effort into R&D as well. And if they're not able to do that, then they will not be a company successful in, in 20 years or in 30 years. So this constant move is important. For the political system, I think they are so big in, in a sense that yeah, people are asking, what does it mean for the role in society in Denmark? I think 
it, it's a company that has a history of 100 years here in Denmark and has been always interacting with the political system in a very responsible manner. I think it's there's not today any tension, but that relationship has to be preserved as we go forward, no doubt. And do you think that more companies will perhaps see their responsibility beyond their own profitability and start trying to find more ways to work with government to affect issues like, you know, that that perhaps are not directly related to their their business, but are related in some way. So whether it's immigration issues, whether it's healthcare issues, whether it's inequality, gender issues, these are all things that are now, you know, more in the, let's say, business sphere than they used to be. So for a company like Novo Nordisk, if they also take on a green agenda, then they have a huge amount of power to be able to, as you say, affect that beyond their own business model, but their supply chain and and also then to influence what other companies are doing. So I'm just curious if you maybe you have some other examples of of where you're seeing business and geopolitics as we started the conversation, you know, sort of overlapping for, let's say, positive change. Yeah, I think that's why I want to mention uh, maybe another company, which is a Danish company. In this case, it's a Maersk, the container shipping company. So what they are doing is basically they are a key infrastructure of the uh, global trade and, and global economy when you move stuff around. Which we all found out um, and during the pandemic and, and the Suez Canal. Exactly what this, happens. That, yeah, there, it's really Exactly. And now there is a, a situation uh, in the Middle East again on the Gulf where... Right, in the Red Sea. And then in the Middle yeah. East where, where... Yeah, exactly. So so we will feel it. But think about it. If we could decarbonize transportation, what that will mean to our societies and, and the fight against climate change, that will be a big achievement. And the problem today is that shipping companies that are operating globally, it's a little bit, bit like uh, aviation companies, yeah? They are, in a way, exempted from many of the gas tax you pay uh, that could be an incentive to move to an electrical vehicle or whatever, you know? They are not, they, so, so they pay the lowest price for the bungalow that they use and so on. So in that sense, Maersk has said, oh, we want to be a front runner when it comes to decarbonizing our shipping, our ships, and and thereby pave the way uh, for you know for decarbonizing and I would say hard to decarbonize sector, and so that's fine. So they're doing that. They are investing a lot into that, uh, into green methanol, into uh, uh, ammonia to ships, and they have built the first uh, smaller but built big container ships that can run purely on renewable energy but that's fine but they also need they need the for example the international maritime organization which is a global organization like the un i mean they need they need support they need the commitment because they cannot compete with with shipping companies from other places in the world that disregard this so so in that sense there's always this tension how far can you move if you don't see you know in the horizon that it will be paid off in one way or the other I mean, of course, I would hope that consumers like you and me, Siri, when we buy a product, 
which we, for most products, we know it's manufactured maybe in China or in other places in Asia. If I could choose to buy a product that will be on all parts of the value chain, CO2 uh, neutral, uh, even in the shipping part, then I would be happy to maybe pay an extra price for that. But how do we get to that structure? Yeah, I mean, that's a political question. So there you need to work with the industry, with the company uh, and find ways so their business model uh, can be successful uh, at the principle of transforming their container fleet into 100% decarbonized fleet. So they can be in, in 10 years be profitable because if not, then they will not do it. They cannot, they cannot do it. The investors, the stakeholders will say, no, we cannot uh, gradually close down our, our company. I think at the end of the, what I'm trying to say is that, yeah, companies can do a lot, but I think it's, it's this cooperation between companies and regulators, lawmakers that can make the real difference. Yeah, and there, I think we are entering into a difficult world because one could argue with all of these institutions that we have, World Trade Organization, the UN system, trade agreements, uh, more political uh, tension, trade war between US, China, Europe, uh, other places. How would we be able to, to make these stable uh, kind of uh, framework for companies so they can invest uh, trusting that we will go in the right direction. Next year, we'll have European elections in, uh, and will a future European Parliament, a future Commission, a future Council, will they still go for the Green Deal and, and make Europe transition its economy, uh, its energy system in time and make the right regulation for it? Or will they step back like the UK just did with Richard Sunak? I mean, they're stepping back on the fight against climate change. So, so there's a lot of uncertainties. And with, with companies, I'm very happy for companies that are taking a stand, but also saying to us, I'm an expert when I was in government, uh, regulators said, please do this and this, and then we can make the right incentive for us. Right. So they, they really have to work hand in hand. But I think what it sounds like you're saying is that companies have the space now to take the lead and to say, you know, we're willing to make these changes. We're willing to take these risks, but we need the regulations to back us up. And I think that means that there needs to be a really close relationship between the public sector and the private sector. If you don't have a thriving private sector, your public sector doesn't have the money it needs to, you know, to give public services. So there's a real dependency, interdependency there. But I think, you know, the other thing that we're seeing is that so many of the geopolitical events that are happening are not just national, right? They're international, they're cross-border. You know, whereas Novo Nordisk or MERS can have perhaps an easier dialogue with the, the government of, of Denmark, where they have an established relationship, but if they want to talk to the government of South Sudan or they want to interact with, you know, with China, it, it's a little bit more complicated to try and put in place those same kind of standards, you know, that would enable them to have the security to then grow their businesses or invest more or open new ports or, you know, whatever it is. So I imagine that that's something, you know, as you, you said at the beginning, that companies will need a chief political officer <laughs> or a chief diplomatic officer or someone who can, who can help them do the, that sort of work. Actually, I, 
I think on the on the positive side, I think it's great that companies now need to take more societal responsibility uh, to be corporate activists, to be you know being integrated of you know the the solutions we need to provide. Because I mean, I think in my own Denmark is a we have a in a way a cooperative system in our country. We have of course the government, but we also have. Uh, strong companies as we have talked about but we also have strong unions and 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 if people take their responsibility for example we have unions that are willing to say okay we will not ask for a pay increase in the next years because we can see that the economy of denmark is challenged by inflation by other things but then we expect when there are better times we will have a bigger pay raise so to speak and, and, and then companies will say, thank you, we will, uh, you know, you have this fundamental trust between institutions that create a better result down the road. And, and my concern is, frankly speaking, that if many of these geopolitical uh, turbulence and future events that we don't even know what will be yet, we have some ideas, you know, what happens to China vis-a-vis Taiwan, you know, what about the Middle East now? Uh, what about Russia's aggression against Ukraine? And what about a new crisis that we haven't thought of arising in, in, in a month's time or two? We don't know. So how all of these events will impact the trust to solve problems together. I think that's what I've been struggling with a lot. And there, I think, frankly speaking, that our political system globally are not suited to deal with it, the new world we are entering. And that's what keeps me awake at night is who will take the lead in forming a world where we do not see wars coming up again and big crisis that will destroy many of the systems. I mean, you just saw the COP28 now. It, it did have some result, but, you know, it was affected by all of the geopolitical events, even in the Middle East, that is not directly related to the climate agenda, but, but still the trust between countries are low. Then the result of these these very important negotiations that should, you know, for example, phase out fossil fuels, uh, the trust was not there. So we got a somewhat negative result, I think. Yeah, and I think also, not to sound too uh, nationalistic, but, you know, the U.S. used to have a role, a stronger role in these areas. And as a sort of capitalist, democratic state that, professed values of equality and opportunity. And that was something that the international community used to kind of depend on. And I think because of what's happened in the US in the last, let's say, 10 years, it feels like the international community can no longer depend on the US for it to have that role, where it steps out of international treaties, where it's, it's you know, talking about leaving NATO, you know, some really important international institutions. So not only is there, you know, a greater need for leadership, but there's this kind of stepping back, this kind of nationalism that, you know, we're seeing the U.S., unfortunately, you know, promote in some instances. And then that leaves, you know, other countries saying, well, if it's U.S. first, then it's going to be Denmark first. And, Ethiopia first and China first, you know, and, and where does that leave us? <laughs> That's exactly my concern. 
I mean, if Russia in any way succeeds in this uh, war against Ukraine, which, you know, they, Russia has the strategic patience, we know. They look at us that are supporting the sovereignty and territorial integrity of a sovereign UN member state, which border were recognized by Russia Federation also prior to the war, but now violated. They look to the rest of the world and they say, ah, now we don't have the specific patience to continue to support Ukraine. If they succeed, Russia, in one form or the other, then a lot of dictators or autocrats out there will say, ah, cool, it's fine to, to use our power to grab some land or to reunify Taiwan with the mainland China, whatever. So besides what you're saying, it's also, you know, who uphold the rules and how do we ensure that we are a good example of the same rules. With climate, I have to say also, I understand the developing world that are saying to us, I mean, you created all the problems over the years because you, you, you industrialized much earlier than us and you benefited from that and have lived in very prosperous societies, but you have a debt. Um, and now you ask us to not burn fossil fuels or do coal mining that would develop our economies. If you do that, then you have to compensate us. So in that sense, I think what I'm, I'm lacking is also a clear understanding of not only our current, but our you know, total responsibility as the advanced world of where we are and how we can move forward in a more positive way. Because the good news is that, and that's, I see it in Denmark, there is technologies, I believe very much in technology, and there are today technologies that can help us and actually solve the climate crisis, I would argue. So it's not that, it's the political will and systems and the cooperation that it needs to ensure that these technologies are deployed in time that is lacking. And who will take that leadership? US is doing, I mean, nationally, I have to, I have to commend US for, for the RA, for example, Inflation Reduction Act, which is a, basically a big tax re reductions to all companies that are investing in in green technology in the US and also manufacturing and, and production. So that is uh, taking responsibility of, of some of this, which is important. And they're also doing it in some ways globally, but not enough. And Europe is also trying, but not enough. So that's my, yeah, I'm, I'm impatient, but I'm cautiously optimistic that we can do something, but I'm not sure who will, as you say, who will be the, the political leader uh, in the world to ensure things are happening. Is it the UAE hosting uh, the COP or, uh, I mean, it's not probably states that rely on their uh, big part of their revenue on, on fossil fuels. I don't know, but it's, uh, yeah. So we, we need to develop uh, much more trust and much more action in my opinion. Well, Yeppe, you've been great with your time. I, I don't want to take it more. I've got just one, sort of one last question is I, I like to use a podcast to be a resource for business owners who are thinking about becoming corporate activists or want to incorporate more activism into what they do. And so now that you're kind of on the other side of things, I'm curious, but also based on you know your decades of political experience, for a company that's interested in taking a political stance, so whether that's, there's different political um, systems in different countries, but 
for, you know, if they want to engage on a political issue, maybe it's a voting rights issue or, um, you know, something like that. What advice would you have for companies that want to put a foot in this and, and how can they do it well? Unfortunately, and I will underline that, if companies take a stand in a political issue, they are also exposed uh, and sometimes attacked for not living up to what they stand for, which is unfair because all of the companies taking no, no stands under the radar companies, they will just live a happy life. So I would say if you do it, you have to at least, <laughs> I wish you could do it more broadly in society. And I would also say I have seen companies, Danish companies even, that has taken a wrong stand on LGBTIQ plus uh, stuff because of fear of, they were arguing that it was physical fear of the employees, which I don't believe is true. But anyway, if you take a stand, be sure that you can deliver something, you know, tangible, that you maybe do it gradually. I wish you could do it more, but gradually. So you'll be sure that you will not end in a situation where you overreach yourself. And I say it's, I think it's unfortunate because I would love to see companies much more activist, but very few are actually rewarded in the short term of activism. We have to change that. And I think there is new generations will ask more about this. So it, there will be changes structurally also, but, but now we need to be a little cautious. Um, and then form alliances, that's my second advice. I mean, that's also very important. So being a front runner by asking others to join, thereby putting pressure on others to, to do uh, the right thing and taking societal sense. I think that's another thing. You can expect backlash. And as long as you're prepared for it and you're coming from a place of authenticity and you're coming from a place of really knowing what you're talking about, eventually that will reward you. And I think, you know, it's in a way, it's when companies, you know, take a stand on something, but yet it's irrelevant to who they are. It's irrelevant to their stakeholders. It's just sort of, you know, like an ad campaign, then, you know, that that's never going to be effective. But there is what we like to talk about here is just that there's a demand that's coming not only from consumers, but from society, from employees, you know, who really are looking to their employers, are looking to their favorite products, are checking, you know, reading labels, all of this thing. And they're looking for companies to really be more engaged in society. And so, you know, we're hoping that perhaps in 2024, we'll see some more corporate activism. <laughs> May I say, Jerry, one more thing. I think to build trust is also be, to be very open as a company about the dilemmas. Saying, say, now we take a stand, but we're not sure. We know that there is uh, uncertainty around this issue, but we take a stand for this and this. And if we, are, if we cannot live up to it, we cannot. But we try, you know, being very open. If you were then criticized for not living up to what you say, and you say, yeah, but we were honest about our dilemmas, dilemmas here, but we choose... Some companies don't choose to, we did it because knowing that there are these dilemmas. And I think that being that honest will, in the longer run, build trust to that company compared to a company not taking a stand. So I would, 
I would actually argue that taking a stand would be good if you do it in the right way. Yeah, 100%. And actually, what came up on another podcast, and I think Lego is also a Danish company. Yeah. It's a, yeah they yeah. had an issue recently where they tried to use renewable plastics to switch completely. Right. But it didn't work, but they were very transparent about it. And they came out and they said, you know, we tried this. It didn't work. We're going to you know, keep trying, but we had promised this thing and it didn't work out. But it gives so much legitimacy and so much credibility to a company rather than trying to cover things up or, or not try at all, which from my perspective, you know, we need everybody at the table doing their best. You know, we need everyone coming up with every solution because as we're finishing the year out, the world is on fire and in distress in so many ways literally with volcanoes in Iceland and war in the Middle East and war in Ukraine and famines. And for me, it's urgent that everyone who has any kind of opportunity to engage in solving some of these issues has to start getting on the ball. And so I know that that's what you're now dedicating your second career to <laughs> is working on some of these issues. So we hope that you can lend all of your great experience uh, to doing that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. No, that, that is so, so fantastic. All right. So the last two wrap up questions, and I promise I'll let you go. So the first one, a chance to give a shout out to a company or a brand who you think is doing really great work in the activism or sustainability space. Well, yeah. Uh... And I was thinking hard about that. Should I take a big uh, company or a small one? But I recently um, jumped into a company uh, which I think is doing some fascinating. It's a startup, so it's a, but it's I like I like uh, these companies that want to change things. So it's it's a Danish registered company called Blow, which is very difficult to to say it because it's contains two letters that is not really in, yeah. <laughs> uh, known to everybody. So, But it's, um, it's a company uh, that are trying to deal with the issue of plastic, okay? Plastic is a huge problem, uh, and I think global production uh, now around 380 million ton annually. Most of this plastic ends, 8 million ton in, ends in the water, in, the, in our seas, in our oceans, and over 1 million marine animals are killed. You know, it's such a big problem. But there is a very simple solution to that. You can use so bioplastic or, you know, plastic, which is not plastic, so not made of fossil fuels, but it, which can be made of uh, biological material. And thereby, you can then, after use, you can, you can even throw it in, in nature and it will decompose itself. Or you can, like this company is doing, it produces bioplastic, but it's also with the help of uh, enzymes and microbes, they, they can do the composition uh, of that bioplast easily and fast. And thereby, you can reuse it, put it back to the ground without any pollution. And you can even have some biogas actually out of it uh, from, from that material. <clears throat> so thinking in life cycles. And the problem this company has is that, you know, when they come to their customers, they say, oh, it's a good product. We want to buy that, but it's two cents more than I pay for my plastic cup. And if you, you look at how much single-use plastic we use every year, when we go to our coffee shop and buy our cup of coffee, it's single-use plastic. And even if it's single-use plastic that you put into a plastic container that's supposed to be recycled, you're not solving the problem. Yeah, you, you can only solve the problem by making 
bioplast instead. So that company I thought was fantastic. It's not a not earning any money, but if this company can be helped to succeed with this business model, we will not only <laughs> save, uh, I would say, CO2 and emissions, we will also solve the problem of uh, single-use plastic. And that will require all of us, the coffee shop, you know, everybody to make it, to be more responsible because then you have to put your cup in a container where it can be recycled 100% because it's biological material. So I thought that was a, a good example of a company that based on, on, on also on research uh, into these uh, enzymes and microbes that they have developed particular for that process, taking responsibility of the whole value chain, you know, the whole life cycle. Because many of us is only looking at a fraction of the life cycle and not thinking about the whole issue. We'll put a link to that company, which I cannot pronounce in the in the show notes. And it has a web page where it's called, uh, it's, it's easier uh, because they don't use the Danish uh, letters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, yeah, we'll include that so yeah. people can, can take a look. But yeah, no, I think the life cycle because, and even we've heard so much about how the recycling industry is not really what we think it is. And so many of the things that we think we're putting in the right bin, and so we've done our bit, is actually just going into a landfill and not actually being, you know, able to be recycled. So that sounds like a really important project. So that's very exciting. Okay, Yepe, the last last thing, what is something that's made you laugh recently? I think I will, it's my, I have a, I have a dog, okay? A, a Cavapoo, <laughs> fantastic dog. It makes a lot of funny things all the time. But so it's recently, it was doing like particular kind of circles of joy when they saw you. And I was so happy and I was laughing. Okay, this, it was doing this kind of, they saw you and it, it, it one is, you know, dogs are always very happy when they see the, uh, the owners of it. But, but this time they was doing this round circles and I was like, okay. It's simple. It's uh, it's um, it's expression of joy, and and the reason why I laugh is that, oh, sometimes we people also just need to to smile and have a you know a, a joyful things in our heads uh, and simple things, which my dog always it's always happy, yeah. So uh, and makes uh, funny things. So I'm sorry to use my dog as an example, but I really thought it was, it's uh, it's surprising me all the time how. You know how an animal can be the best friend of human being, and also teach us something about appreciating joy. I think there's this guy who's doing a study on longevity, and actually one of the keys to longevity is having a dog. <laughs> so the two so, of us theory uh, is uh, in, yes. in a good shape there. No? <laughs> Yes, yeah, so we're lucky, and we might have to include a, a picture of your cute little dog in the show notes, just so people can. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> can exactly. Sleep. You're welcome. <laughs> um, well, Yefe, yeah. it has been great to speak with you. Um, Thank you too. You know, we we've been friends uh, for mm. almost twenty years now, and right. it's been amazing to see how your career has developed, and um, you know, from starting our classes on you know economics and all those things that we studied so long ago right to see how you're actually yeah. putting it all. it was fun times <laughs> yes yeah. it was fun times also challenging time but anyway <laughs> yeah challenging but it's it's been amazing to see you actually put it all in practice on the world stage and so it's been you know a source of pride i think for me and and all of our classmates to see all of the good that you're doing in the world and and i'm sure that 
there's much, much more to come. So, um, you know, congratulations just on, on your, you know, your, your amazing career and, you know, for this new chapter, which I'm really excited about for you as well. Well, thank you. And also, uh, likewise, and, and I mean, what you have done, also what you're doing with this corporate activism, I think is very, very important. And now for me, moving into a corporate world, I really see what you can, what you're making also a difference, Siri, and that you're focusing on something which without corporate activism, we cannot solve the problems that we are faced with. So I want to really, from my heart, thank you on that too. And, uh, and it's good to see you again. Uh, and the fun memories of our days back at, at the Kennedy School at Harvard. It was fun. Thanks so much, Jeppe. And thank you for joining me for this episode of The Corporate Activist. Please stay tuned for future episodes in the new year and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have some great guests lined up for 2024 and I hope you'll join me for these conversations. You can follow us on X and Instagram at Corp Activist. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have questions of your own or need some advice about corporate activism, social impact and political engagement, please send them our way and we will respond in future episodes. I'd like to wish everyone a happy and healthy holiday season and a bright and beautiful new year. The Corporate Activist is brought to you by Stance Advocacy Services and is produced by the good people at the Podcast Boutique. I'm your host, Siri Khalsa. Ciao for now.